So a few months ago, Carson asked me to uh, put up a basketball goal for him. Up at CC at his school, they had been playing basketball on Tuesdays and was enjoying it and uh, said, Dad, could we put up a basketball goal? And in fact, uh, someone had given us a backboard and a rim. And so all I had to do was get a pole. And so I went to a local outfit that sells steel and, and got a steel pole and, and, and went home. And uh, Carson and I went and got some post hole diggers and uh, went out right by the, the driveway and uh, just started digging a hole with the post hole diggers. And we went down a little bit uh, further and a little bit further and looked, looked pretty deep. And so we, we put the pole down in the ground and uh, tried to level it, and Carson held it, and I packed the, the dirt down in uh, to the, the remaining part of the hole to, to stiffen uh, the, the pole. And uh, then we attached the backboard and the rim, and we began to play on it. As we played on it, we got kind of knocked into the pole a little bit and we're shooting against the backboard. And what do you think happened to the basketball goal? Yeah, it leaned. It started leaning and then it started tipping a little bit. And if I wanted to, I could have pulled the whole thing out. All right. Now, this is obvious. I'm not a fix-it man, a resource man, a tool man. I'm not a contractor or a master carpenter or anything like that. Okay. And so I just thought we were doing what we needed to do. So what Carson and I did is we went back to the drawing board, we, we pulled the pole out of the hole, and, and uh, we got a shovel and some concrete mix and some water and, uh, and our post hole diggers, and we went wider and we went deeper with the hole, and, and so we, uh, we, we then uh, put the pole back in and we put the concrete mix around it and uh, poured the water in, filled it up with uh, more dirt, and then we, we leveled it, and we said, okay, we're not going to play on it for a day, all right? And so the next day, uh, started shooting basketball on it, and it went well. And it went well for five days. On the fifth day, I was pulling out to go to work, and I backed into the pole. <laughs> okay, so what do you think happened to the pole? Well, you might think that it, it was okay. It was not okay. All right, it, it leaned, all right, and it's leaning to this day. All right, it is still leaning. And, 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 uh, and it's like, wow, okay, well, we're going to have to go deeper, and we're going to have to get more cement mix for it to be stable if it's going to survive the Limbaugh Hacienda, all right, if it's going to survive. Now, you're asking yourself the question right now, what in the world does that have to do with pursuing the glory of God and the joy of all people? Um, the answer is nothing and everything at the same time. Because listen to me. Life is hard. And especially the Christian life is very hard. Because what we have is we have the devil who is the master deceiver who is the master liar and the master manipulator, and he is doing everything that, we, that he possibly can to bring us down, our spiritual life. And not only that, we have the world who is trying to seduce us with every way for us to worship the creation rather than the creator and redeemer of the world. And then we have our own flesh who lives among us and in us, who is trying to creep inside of our hearts 
and is trying to rise up and let the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life take over ourselves. And this is the thing. If we're not rooted deeply in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if we are not cemented in the power of His resurrection, when life happens to us, when the difficulties come, when the world comes at us, when the devil comes at us, when our flesh rises up from one us, you know what's going to happen? We're going to lean. We're going to fall. We could tip over. And I will tell you, I am not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I'm about to tell you something deeply profound. Stuff is going to happen to you in 2015. I mean, life is going to happen to you. And the question is, are you going to be deeply rooted? Are you going to be cemented in the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you're prepared when it happens? That's really the question. Um, when I think about what passage of Scripture or what book of the Bible that we should go to, when we realize that life is going to happen, there are a myriad of places that we can go. But when I realize, folks, that this year there are going to be marriages in this room that are going to have problems. There are going to be parent-child relationships that are going to be strained. There are going to be jobs that are likely lost. There are going to be relationships, friendships that get sideward with one another. There's going to be theological problems that happen in your life and in relationships with people that you know that you've got to have answers to. I had a friend call me yesterday who I sought to counsel for about an hour over the phone because two men had approached him to study the Bible and unbeknownst to him, they are part of a cult. And this cult was trying to convince him of things that, that were not true, but, but in reality, he did not have the depth of his understanding in the Scriptures and in the Gospel and in Christ to give an answer for the hope that he had in him, and so he was doing the right thing. He was calling someone to receive help in the Gospel. But I'm telling you, that kind of thing is going to happen with us as well. And there is no greater book, I believe there is no greater resource for us to go to than the book of Colossians. So I would like for you now to turn to the book of Colossians I just want us to take a look at a few verses as we introduce as we introduce this series called Deeper. Because we want to go deeper into the things of God today and for, the, for 24, 25 weeks so that we can be prepared for the challenges of life. Now as you're turning to Colossians, I want you to know that the Colossian church was just like Redeemer Church. The Colossian church was trying to live for the glory of God and the joy of all people. The Colossian church was trying to love God and love others. The Colossian church was trying to honor the Lord Jesus Christ who had purchased them. And so Paul, Paul knew the trials and the tribulations that they were going through. As a matter of fact, the Colossian world was very similar to our world because in the Colossian world, people were trying to convince the church that Jesus Christ is not sufficient. Jesus Christ is not supreme. You need more than Christ. You don't even need the fullness of Christ. You need other things. You need laws and rules and experiences and angels and all of these other things to inform you and fuel you for a successful life. And Paul would say, wait a minute, no, you don't. You need to go deeper. You need to get rooted in the gospel. So look down at chapter 1. I want you to look down uh, beginning in verse 9. And I just want you to see what Paul had to say to a church just like ours. He says beginning in verse 9, he says, 
we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Why don't you keep your eyes on the text right there and notice one thing. Paul has no paradigm for a minimalistic, marginalistic, shallow Christian life. Look at those words. Fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work. Strengthened with all power. There is no blueprint for a nominal Christian life, according to Paul. Look down at chapter 1, verse 28. In verse 1, I mean, in uh, chapter 1, verse 28, he says, Him, that is Christ, Jesus Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's saying, I don't want a single church member immature or unprepared for the life that is going to happen to them. I want them to be complete. I want them to be mature in Christ. That is my goal for every Christian, Paul would say. Look over at chapter 2, verse 6. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Redeemer Church, look at me for just a moment. I want to declare something to you. It is the will of God for you to go deeper in the faith this year. It is the will of God. It is not the will of God for you to stay the same in your faith. Ben, Ron, elders of Redeemer Church, it is not the will of God to stay where you are. It is the will of God for you to go deeper and stronger and to be rooted in Christ and in the gospel. And that goes for every Christian in the building. Let's look down at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Observation. Spiritual maturity doesn't happen by osmosis. Doesn't happen. He gives two controlling commands there. Seek and set. Seek the things that are above and set your mind on the things above. That's how you're going to be deeply rooted in the gospel and firmly cemented in Jesus Christ and the power of His resurrection. It's not going to happen by you simply strolling into church on Sundays and strolling out. Maybe listening to a sermon on the radio as you're driving around or maybe not. No, there is a purposeful resolve to set your mind on the things of God and to pursue the things of God each day. That's what Paul would say. Look down at verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs 
with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What Paul is saying here is that spiritual depth does not happen in isolation. If you're going to be deeply rooted in the gospel and if you're going to be firmly cemented in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to be a community project. We're going to sing together. We're going to pray together. We're going to learn together. You're going to get preached to. You're going to, get, you're going to preach at. There's going to be an iron sharpening iron effect. Spiritual maturity does not happen in isolation. It happens in community with a family. And then look down at chapter 4. Chapter 4, in the midst of these final greetings that Paul is giving, and he's telling the church about all these people who minister to him and minister with him and then also love their church, he mentions Epaphras. Epaphras is from their church. And he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Paul, why does Epaphras struggle? You listen to him pray every day. You listen to what his desires are for the Colossian church. What are they? That you may stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. The man who loved the Colossian church the most prayed daily for the spiritual depth and the spiritual rootedness of his church. It's an observation that we need to take note of. And so it is obvious, church, that Paul, it is obvious that the Holy Spirit wants us to go deeper in gospel rootedness and firmer in Christ's strength and the power of His death and burial and resurrection. And as what we're going to learn in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, this is what he's going to say. You've got to go deeper in grace, deeper in the gospel, deeper in Christ, deeper in the mortification of sin, deeper in the pursuit of sanctification, deeper in fellowship with the saints, deeper in the worship of the Lord, both individually and collectively as a body. But more than anything else, you've got to go deeper into Jesus Christ himself. That's what he's going to say. And he's saying... This is the theme. This is the whole big idea of the book of Colossians. He's saying if you're going to go deeper, if you're going to be cemented, this is what you must understand. Jesus Christ is supreme. He is supreme in creation. He is supreme in the new creation. And He is supreme in your Christian life. That's what He's saying over and over and over again. So not only did He create and sustain everything, but now He recreates and sustains your Christian life. And not only that, He's going to be the fuel and the power and the motivation for you to be able to walk through your marriage problem, for you to be deal with your parenting problem, for you to be able to deal with your idolatry problem, for you to, be able to, to work out things with your friend who you've now gone sideways with, for you to be able to work through and deal with this job that you've lost. You're going to be able to do it because you've got Christ in you. And so, here we have... Our, our theme for the next 24 weeks deeper. Deeper in the gospel today, as we'll see in just a few minutes, but we're going to go deeper into Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, church, are you all ready to do that? I'm serious. Are you ready? Because if, if you're not ready, we all need to get ready. 
It's going to be intense. So uh, why don't we do this? Why don't we pause and let's pray. And let's ask God to give us a heart to want to go deeper. Father, the fact is that every one of us has flesh that resists going deeper into Christ. The fact is we have a world that is screaming at us at every turn that it is foolishness to go deeper into Christ. And we have an arch enemy who is doing everything that he can to prevent us from going deeper. And Father, we would ask this one thing. Would you keep us from believing lies and help us to trust in him who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, that we may go deeper in him this year. In his name we pray. Amen. I couldn't help but think about Peter. And when Peter is walking out on the water to meet with Jesus, and then he begins to sink, I help but just, just glory in the fact that even when I don't keep my eyes above the waves, Christ is going to be there to rescue me. Praise God. Praise the Savior. So I want to ask you right now to turn to Colossians, and we're just going to look for just a few minutes at Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The title of this message is Deeper in the Gospel. Deeper in the Gospel. There are really two ways that we can approach the text in this greeting. It's just a a general greeting from Paul to the Colossians. And, and we could say, number one, well, this is just a standard greeting. We basically see this kind of thing in, in all of his 13 letters. And so let's just read it quickly and get on with the body of the message. Or we could say, number two, wait a minute. The Spirit of God has inspired this greeting. God wanted it in the text of Scripture. And so it's very possible that the Lord wants us to learn something from this greeting. And so let's see what the Lord might have to teach us. And so we're going to take option number two this morning, all right? And so what the Holy Spirit wants us to do is to go deeper in the gospel this morning from this, from this little bitty greeting. We want to go deeper into the gospel. He wants us to take basically a, sh- a spiritual shovel, and he wants us to go deeper and to get uh, firmly rooted and cemented in Jesus Christ and his person and his work for us in our beha- on our behalf. So he wants to do that by showing us three aspects of the gospel. Three aspects of the gospel. Let's read the text and then we'll look at the three aspects, okay? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. I just want to, just one little aside. Um, you say tomato, I say tomato. All right, you may say Colossae, I might say Colossae. It really does not matter. All right, and so it might be interchanged throughout the next 24 weeks. It's not a big deal, okay? Um, but that is who this letter is to. Now, the first aspect of the gospel that the Holy Spirit wants us to see is the power of the gospel. He wants us to see the power of the gospel in verse 1 when Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. 
We see the power of the gospel by seeing who writes the letter. Who writes this letter, church? Paul. Paul does. And I think what the Spirit of God would want us to just sit back and just recall is recall the former life of the Apostle Paul. What was the Apostle Paul's former name? Saul. He was Saul of Tarsus, right? And Saul of Tarsus, in his former life, had a dead religion. His dead religion was Judaism. And Judaism was all about um, keeping rules, following laws, so that you can puff yourself up in front of all your religious friends. And not only that, Saul of Tarsus was all about fleshly pride. He was all about heaping worship upon himself, adoration and exaltation among himself. Listen to what he tells the Philippians. He he says this, he says, listen, if anybody could boast, if anybody could have confidence, fleshly confidence, I could. I was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. All right. I, I, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the laws of Pharisee, concerning zeal, I persecuted to church, and concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Man, I was a boaster because nobody was better than I was. But listen, in that, he worshiped himself rather than God. And then also, he had a violent hatred for Jesus Christ, which manifested itself in a violent hatred for anybody who claimed the name of Jesus. And do you realize that essentially the the Apostle Paul who was once Saul was a terrorist? I mean, he was. If you look at the definition of a terrorist, Saul of Tarsus was one. And so here is this former life. He's got a dead religion. He's got an idolatry of his own self. And he is violently and vehemently hateful and murderous toward people who love Jesus. Wow. But then in Acts 9, we read about something that happens to him that absolutely changes his life. So he is, he's got rules and he's got, he's got uh, orders to go on this road up to this town to seize Christians, to imprison them, and ultimately to kill them. And as he is on the Damascus road, a light shines from the heavens. It blinds him, it knocks him to the ground, and the words come out from the heavens, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who, who are you, Lord? And he says, it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it, Saul? And so Saul is blinded, he's put down on the ground, and then ultimately he is escorted into town where this man Ananias has a a, a revelation from God himself, from the Lord Jesus Christ, and said, listen, Saul is in this house, and Ananias, I know you're scared of him, but you've got to go, and I want you to minister to him. And Ananias, even though he is scared, takes courage and goes to Saul and begins to speak the gospel to Saul, to speak hope to Saul, puts his hands on Saul, scales fall off of Saul's eyes, Saul believes the gospel. He is baptized into the church and begins to fellowship with the saints, Acts says. And then he goes and becomes a preacher and an apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is his conversion. And so Saul ultimately becomes the apostle Paul. And then Paul tells us here in this verse that he's an apostle. Now what is an apostle? Well, the the literal word means one who is sent by an authoritative figure and possesses the authority of that authoritative figure. So in this case, Paul is sent by Jesus Christ, who is supremely authoritative, and not only is he sent by him, he possesses inherently 
the authority that Jesus Christ has over the world and over the church. So that's exactly what uh, what Paul does for the rest of his life. He serves as an apostle. Now, this is, uh, this is some technical information for you, but what, what essentially did the apostles do? The apostles laid the foundation for the church, all right? And the apostles received the word of God, they preached the word of God, and they wrote the word of God. That's what apostles did. And I want to tell you that the apostle Paul, once he was converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's exactly what he did. He received the word, he preached the word, he taught the word, and he wrote the word, such that now we have a Bible that is full of the Apostle Paul's words. Why? Because he was an apostle. He possessed the inherent authority of Jesus Christ and disseminated that authority to the world. So there he is. He is an apostle. But what we would want to know here. We not only want to know about his former life and not only about his conversion and his apostleship, but I think to get to know him, you've got to understand his love. The apostle Paul, when he was transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, became the most loving man, became the most compassionate and passionate man on planet earth. And sometimes we think of Paul as this hard line, kind of my way or the highway kind of guy. And there's no doubt he was firm in his convictions. But I don't know that anybody, apart from the Lord Jesus, has ever loved the lost more than Paul did. And he he didn't go on one missionary journey. He didn't go on two missionary journeys. He went on three missionary journeys and possibly more. And he tells the Corinthians, he said, I've been beaten, I've been whipped, I've been shipwrecked, I've gone through thick and thin. I I, I have gone through great persecution. But why do I do that? Because I want people to be saved. I want people to experience the conversion that I've experienced. He loved the lost. Not only did he love the lost, he loved his native Israel. What does he tell the Romans? He says, I wish I I would just be accursed if Israel could get saved. I love my people. I love Israelites. And while I've been appointed an apostle to the Gentiles, I love them and would do anything that I possibly could for them to receive the salvation that I have received. He loved the church, y'all. When we read the book of Colossians, we're going to find that this man loved a church that he had never even visited. This man was passionate about a church that he didn't even plant. No, Epaphras told him about this church. Epaphras prayed for this church in his presence, and his heart for the church of Jesus Christ was so great for the church that he loved them dearly. And that's why he says, listen, I want to warn every man and teach every man so that you guys can be complete in Jesus Christ. Why does he love? He loves the church. Why does he do that? It's because he loves the Savior. Paul Paul said, you know, the greatest thing that I want to do is to know him. Wait wait a minute, Paul. Don't you know him? Like, Don't you know the Savior? He says, I want to know him more. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be in full, intimate relationship with the Savior who converted me that day on the Damascus Road. So there's a little bit more about the Apostle Paul who's writing this letter to Colossians. And then he just says, and Timothy, our brother. Uh, Timothy was with them, ministering alongside of him. Certainly had come to visit Paul. and, And we could go into detail about Timothy's own conversion and his own life and how his parents had raised him up 
in the fear and admonition of the Lord, teaching him the Old Testament scriptures and how Paul went to go preach the gospel in his hometown and Timothy believed it and was converted at that point. And at that point, Timothy and Paul, even though there was a discrepancy in years and in age by a lot, they became brothers. They became fellowship partners and laborers in the ministry because of the powerful gospel had changed each of their lives and united them indissolubly and forever because of this powerful gospel. So, so this is the deal, church. Paul and Timothy embody the powerful gospel. They embody what it does. It takes you from your former life. It converts you. It changes you. It, it takes you from darkness to light, from, from death to life, from, from hell to heaven, from, from outside of Christ to inside of Christ. This is the powerful gospel that had changed Paul, and that's who's writing this letter. And I want to ask you this question today, church. How did the gospel change you? How did the gospel even come to you? Have you had a moment like Paul had? Did you have a mom or a dad who opened up the scriptures and shared with you the gospel? How about a Sunday school teacher? Or a coach? Or a next door neighbor? Or an aunt or a grandparent? Or were you driving down the road listening to the radio one day and the gospel goes forth and you heard it and God saved you? How did God save you? I think that it would be appropriate today to pause and to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and say like the Apostle Paul, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for sending a missionary, whoever that might have been, to give me this powerful gospel that I, my life can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. Praise him. Well, that is the power of the gospel. The next thing that the spirit would want us to see is the prize of the gospel. The prize of the gospel. Paul says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, now for the sake of time today, um, we, we just can't go into all these details, but if you just look down at the text, we've got to ask the question, who are the Colossians? First, they're saints, which is to say they're called out of the world to be God's holy people. They're people whom God has set His holy and, and, and affectionate and electing love upon. It's not that they're so awesome. It's not that inherently they have this wonderful character the way that we talk about, oh, she's a saint, or he's a saint. No, that's, Paul's not saying you guys are unbelievably holy. He's saying, no, God has put His unbelievably holy love upon you, and I can call you saints because Christ loves you that much. And he says, look, not only that, they're faithful. They have an abiding allegiance to the gospel. The Colossians are not fair-weather Christians. They're not bandwagon Christians. No, they are full of faith, and they express that faith by fidelity to Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. We use the word faithful improperly too much in the church. The word faithful inherently has faith in it. And so you can be loyal to attend church. You can be loyal to a, a, a wife or to a husband. You can be loyal or even committed, but that does not mean you are faithful. Because to be faithful, you have to have a robust faith in the person and work of Jesus, and that faith empowers your life of loyalty, your life of commitment, your life of allegiance to whatever it is that you're committed to. Now, they are also family, and I want you to see this. Look, he calls them brothers. The Colossian church was a Gentile church. Were there Jews in it? Sure. But it was a Gentile church. 
Do you believe in his wildest dreams that Saul of Tarsus would ever call a Gentile his brother or sister? No way. He wouldn't call him a friend. He wouldn't look at him. He would turn the other way. There's no way he would call them brothers and sisters in Christ. But the Holy Spirit had so invaded his life, had so changed his heart that he calls them brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, listen, you're my family. You and I don't even really know each other well, but we're in the same family. And y'all, I would say this. God's family stretches across all genders, all races, all ethnicities, all continents, and all times. Do you realize that the Colossian church is also our brothers and sisters? Do you realize that those folks over at Iron City Baptist Church are our brothers and sisters and we are family together because Christ has put us in His family? And so Paul reveals that they're saints and faithful and they're family, but more than anything else, he he reveals that they are in Christ. In Christ. This is the most important thing that we see here. Because when you are in Christ, you're no longer outside of Christ. When you are in Christ, you are no longer outside of the blessings and the mercies and the graces that Jesus Christ wants to pour onto you. So let me just... Let me say a few things here about being in Christ and we'll move on. This is very important. To be in Christ, it means theologically that you are justified in Him. You wanted to have salvation. You wanted to know God and to live under His blessing. And you tried. But you, as hard as you tried, And as much as you tried to do good, you were separated from God. But this is what happened. Jesus Christ lived the life that you were trying to live, and he lived it perfectly. He died the death that you deserve on the cross. He experienced hell on your behalf. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose from the dead, defeating hell, defeating sin, defeating Satan, defeating the world. And this is the thing. If you put your faith and your trust in His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His powerful resurrection from the grave, God as judge says, I justify you. I declare you, Ryan Limbaugh, righteous because of what you have done by believing in my perfect righteous Son. So listen, if you're in Christ, it means you're justified in Him. You're declared righteous. And right now, if you're in Christ, is the second thing theologically it means. It means that you are sanctified in Him. You are being made holy in Christ. You are being made like Him. You, you, you are being made like the perfect Son of God because He is in you and He is empowering and fueling your Christian life. Now, sometimes it may not feel like that. And y'all, this is very important. Sometimes we think of sanctification as if we start here at conversion and it is like a very steep and straight incline all the way up to heaven. It is not that way. It's just not that way. What it looks like, if I could make my arm get all kind of crinkled, all right, um, it actually just kind of looks like this. But I will tell you, the progress is always upward. It is always Godward and it is always heavenward. Why? Because you're being sanctified in Christ. And ultimately, when you get up here, it means you're glorified in Christ. It means you embody all of the holiness and all of the purity and all of the perfections of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, that is one of the main reasons I'm excited about being in Him because one day, I'm going to be just like Him. And so, theologically, you are justified, sanctified, and one day glorified in Him. Now, practically, what does it mean? 
Listen, this is so important. You now have a relationship with Jesus. Like beforehand, you had no relationship with him. The only relationship that you had with him was you were at enmity with him. You were at war against him. And whether you wanted to admit it or not, you really hated Jesus. But when the gospel came and overpowered your heart and caused you to believe, you now have a relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who created the world, sustains the world, and now is the Lord over the world and one day will return with all power and all glory and receive worship from those who have been changed by the gospel. You have a relationship with this King. And so you have the presence of Christ and you have the power of Christ I think I just want to say this, that, that when you are in Christ, it means that not only are you in Him, but, you, but He is in you. But it doesn't matter where you go, Christ is in you. And it doesn't matter where He is, you are in Him. So right now, I just want to say that there is no better place to be than in Christ, and there is no worse place to be than outside of Christ. I want to ask you right now, are you inside or are you outside? Are you in Him or are you outside of Him? And if you're in Him, if you are in Christ, I want to ask you, do you really know and enjoy the presence and the power of Christ? I want to ask you right now, um, if you would, just imagine with me. I'm not going to ask how many of you all uh, enjoy guns because I think I know how many of you enjoy guns. All right, and so um, imagine going over to uh, the gun show at the BJCC. And, and imagine walking in there and seeing all of these weapons, these handguns, rifles, AK-47s, possibly even some grenades, um, uh, knives, uh, swords, just, just everything violent, all right, is in there. And, uh, and you're like, boy, I'd love to have one of those, and I'd love to have one of those. And, and, and then all of a sudden, the, the owner, the manager of the gun show, comes up to you and says, I've got, I've got a wonderful gift for you. You get every single gun and every single weapon that is inside this, this building. And you get fired up and you go home and you build a building behind your house to house this arsenal. All right? Okay, so you've got an arsenal back in the back and you lock the door and put a padlock on it and you go and live your life. And then all of a sudden, you hear that this, that this army, that these, that these invaders, these evil people have come into the United States of America and, they're, and they, they are attacking you. They are attacking people in their homes. And they are going from house to house. And they are invading people and they are killing people and, and destroying families and all of this. And you're in your room right now. You're in your living room, let's say, with your family. And you're thinking, oh, what, what are we going to do? What, what can we possibly do to defend ourselves? I tell you what, wife, you go and, and uh, hide underneath the bed. And kids, y'all go get in the closet. And, and, and uh, I'll, I'll find a, maybe get a baseball bat. I, I remember I have one of those. And, and, and let's just hope for the best. And, and what do you have in your backyard? What do you have? An arsenal. You have an arsenal. And I am convinced that in Christ, we have an arsenal. And I am convinced that as Christians, we're in our living rooms, hoping for the best, hiding in the closet, getting underneath the bed. And what Paul wants to tell us in the book of Colossians 
is unlock that lock and open the door and get those grenades and get those guns and get that weaponry because there is a world and a devil and the flesh to be defeated and you can do it because you are in Christ. Let's just look finally at the last thing. It'll be very, very quick. He wants us to see not only the prize, the prize of the gospel is Jesus Christ. I may or may not have even said that. Um, And the promise of the gospel is grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace is God's undeserved favor that has been bestowed on you even though you deserve disfavor. I mean, you have earned judgment. You have earned hell. You have earned condemnation. And grace comes in and says, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to save you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going to exalt you. I am not going to send you to hell. I'm going to bring you to heaven with me. That is grace. And this is what Paul is saying. Listen, you guys have experienced that grace, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to know the grace, not only of salvation, but the grace of sanctification, the grace of service, the grace of love. Everything good in the Christian life is grace. And Paul is saying, I want that for you. And he says, because of that, you'll get peace. He says, listen, you're going to know the harmony and the unity and the stability that comes from being in a reconciled relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so I wish grace and peace to you. I want to ask you right now, church, if you would, just bow your heads. I have a moment of of meditation. Have a moment of meditation right here because this is what I, this is my prayer for us. This is my prayer for us. My prayer is that because of the power of the gospel and because of the prize of the gospel, namely being in Jesus, that you and I in 2015 will know more fully, more thoroughly, the promise of the gospel, which is daily grace, daily peace. It's marriages being reconciled. It's kids being saved. It's neighbors coming into fellowship with you. It's it's wellness and wholeness, not only in your own personal life, but it's in relationships. Y'all, it's healing. And it's the kind of healing that only Jesus Christ can bring in His gospel. Would you pray that God would bring you grace and peace right now?